Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And um, we've got an argument to settle on every movie journal now. No, that's not true. Not this time. You know, one might come up. Who knows? I don't Um, see it, but it could. Yeah, you're right. I, I feel like I usually know, like... If I've got, okay, I've got a documentary about abortion. Sure. The Handmaid's Tale. I know when something is, you know, uh, when when there's an ember. Yeah. Uh, You know what I mean? Uh, Like if, say, if one of us had watched City of Ember. Sure. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Would that actually spark anything? I don't know. I Would that ember jump to flame? Yeah, barely, <laughs> barely sparked my memory of having seen the movie. That's With Bill Murray, directed by uh, Gil Keenan? what's his name, Gil Keenan. Yeah, yeah. Mon- uh, Monster House, right? Yeah, and the Poltergeist remake after. Uh, that's after. right. Yes, yes. Um, and for a while, slated to make uh, Thief of Always uh, oh, many right. years ago. I wish that had happened. Yeah, did you ever see City of Ember? No, it's fine. It's not particularly memorable, but it's not no. a bad movie. Yeah. Um, I remember I was interested at the uh, time, but it just kind of slipped away and I haven't felt the need to go back. I used to, this is something that I used to do when I was single. Um, all right. Well, I mean, there are other things I used to do when I was single, like try to meet people. Sure. But what some days, like when you're single, sometimes you got a Saturday and you got nothing to fill it up with. Mm-hmm. So I would go to like, go to a movie theater and do, you know, a double feature that kind of, you know, you only pay for one movie. Sure. I, I make money now. I don't do that anymore. But the thing you pay for one movie, you walk around and see a movie or two. You just see, you know, another movie. And so I think I saw, if I'm remembering correctly, I saw City of Ember and Quarantine, the rec remake uh, oh, starring yeah. um, Dexter's sister. Uh, why can't I remember her name? I love that actor so much. I could picture her. I oh, can't help you. Um, and I thought they were both fine. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another day. I'm trying to know what was the first one I but saw. But you saw two of them, so you're you know you're getting quantity over yeah, quality. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to know what the other one was that I saw because there was another double feature, and I can't remember what the first one was that I saw. But I know the second one was The House Bunny, starring Anna oh, yeah. Faris, um, a movie that I like that I still sometimes think about. No. Um, did you ever see that one? No. But and I should. I like Anna Faris quite a bit. Uh, yeah, and it has a great. I mean, it has a great cast. It has a you know pre superstardom Emma Stone is in it. Yeah. And, uh, I want to say, uh, what's her name? Kat Dennings. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Is is one of the uh, the gals in the house? And you also got a small role uh, by the great Christopher McDonald. Uh, he plays a judge, or maybe the dean. So that's that's the about right. Yeah. That Christopher McDonald play. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, he has one of the one of the best lines of the uh, of the movie, which is kind of in retrospect, kind of a rip off of like a Billy Madison thing. But like Anna Ferris makes her big like appeal and then he just says no that's stupid <laughs> nice uh anyway what have you seen all right i've seen four movies i saw the lost city of zed oh good which i at t- at times love at other times merely really like um but in those moments when i am loving it uh, i it's it's astounding i think it's great it's it's unfortunate i'm going to be doing a more than one lesson episode about it very soon companion film bugsy and um and it's unfortunate because i'll be doing that episode with josh not that that's inherently unfortunate a little bit but uh and i see via letterbox that he did not seem to care for it uh well that'll be interesting not merely as much as i did but just in general and so it's just like ugh. 
Do you feel like, like I want to delve more into the theme, but now I'm going to have to just debate whether it's actually good or not. But oh well. Uh, so I feel I saw the Lost City of Zed. I thought it was really good. Yeah. Uh, like I would give you know uh, I don't give ratings or grades when I write reviews. Right. But as a shorthand, I give it a B plus. Like it's really probably good. about right. Yeah. But then. Like and so, I, I again, I really, really liked Lost City of Zed, but so many of the critics that I uh, respect, that I tend to agree with, are over the moon about it. That a part of me feels like, did I miss something? Yeah, like, it's, like I understand it's really, really good, and it's two hours and forty minutes. That doesn't really feel like two hours and forty minutes because yeah. it has this sort of uh, dreaminess. It almost just—it's like it's both like stately and surreal at the same time yes do you know what i mean um i do did when you were watching it i'm sorry uh, i'm i'm putting this out there as a possible explanation when you were watching it did you occasionally get little hints uh not like in a ripoff way but hints of david lean um I mean, I definitely see what you're saying. Uh, uh, definitely, actually, no, no, you mentioned it. Like, but, not um, merely that, the that scope. That wouldn't be a problem, but, though. Right, no, not at all. But I wonder if, like, you know, as as critics tend to do, if a modern movie it, it evokes a certain filmmaker or an older specific film or an older genre or something like that, something we don't see very often anymore, um, I feel like there there's such affection for that thing that people are so excited to see it again. I can't tell you how many but, reviews I read where they said like, oh, this seems like an old-fashioned adventure tale. I was like, well, first off, it probably doesn't. I can't imagine old like the old adventure tales being as meditative as this. Yeah. But uh, but the thing is, those critics you're talking about, I'm one of them. <laughs> like, I'm That's something that I tend to respond very well to. As do I. Is, is that sort of, um, I'm going to call it... Uh, classicalism uh, classicism sure. and I, we've had this conversation before i don't know if the word is classicalism or classicism like james gray is a classicalist director okay. is that am i right or is he a classicist director classicist sounds too much negative. like classist yeah, yeah yeah it sounds negative yeah let's go with the let's call it classicalism okay i tend to respond very well to that sort of thing and that and that is the stuff that i liked about this yeah. i think the stuff that that held it back a little bit is i think um uh, who's the, is it Angus McFadgen? Yeah. Uh, like there's a scene where he is telling Charlie Hunnam what his character is. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't care about X. All you care about is Y. And right. part of me is like, I had figured that out from the, you know, hour and 40 minutes of movie that happened up till then. Like it's, it seemed a little clunky and, uh, distrusting of the audience to have it laid out like that. I loved everything about, Everything related to Angus McFadden, I feel like not merely his performance, but I mean like everything around his character and everything that his character's presence meant. And I immediately looked up that guy, and all of that stuff is true. Oh, really? Uh, and then because I know there are some like in the movie, the main character Percy Fawcett mm-hmm. only goes to the to South America three times, whereas in real life he made like nine or ten yeah. trips. Yeah. And then um, his, so I didn't know how much of that would be true. And his final trip, he went with his son and his son's like close friend. Um, but I can understand why they would remove him just for dramatic purposes. But oh, no, sorry, I'm, I'm okay with the pairing down. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying I needed the movie to be yeah. three times as long so it could fit in all the trips. Right. Although that would be fun. Just a, a whole <laughs> it's, it's, it's a TV series at this yeah, point. Yeah. Um, and uh, but no, everything everything about that character is correct right down to him going back to the arctic being on a boat that gets stuck in the ice he and 
three other guys like mutiny and just jump onto the ice and like head out onto the ice and are never heard from again. Um, and that in itself is interesting, but, uh, but the scene you're talking about, I know what you're, I know what you mean. And the reason that it was okay for me is because it's delivered by a character. It's delivered by an unreliable character. Like it's someone that, okay. you know, it, it's like when someone that you don't like is like criticizing you because you don't like this person and you agree with them so infrequently, it'd be, it's easier to dismiss their opinion, okay. which is why if they're saying something that might actually be a little bit true, it's like, oh, that, it hurts all that much more. Um, but I guess what I felt, and I, I feel like if it were just that one moment, it wouldn't have bothered me as much. And here I am talking about the stuff I didn't like about a movie that I vastly loved. Yes. Like, I love most parts yes. of this movie. But... Because after that is the World War One se- sequence. It's yeah. after that, and when he's in the trenches in World War One, Percy Fawcett, he's mm-hmm. looking at pictures not of his family, right, but of the jungle. Yeah, and I feel like it, I feel like that on its own would have been powerful. But because we had the yeah. earlier scene of Angus McFadden telling us that he cares more about the jungle than anything else, yeah. then it feels like the movie going, "See, he was right," yeah. as opposed to being a quiet, unspoken moment. I feel like it would have been a more uh, a more effective moment if we hadn't already been told how to feel about it. Or you just you pare that down and you just say you don't care about where Angus McFadden says like you don't care about me, you don't care about any of these men, and just leave it there, let it hang, mm-hmm. so that we we know what the rest is. Yeah, as does Charlie Hunnam's character. Right. Yeah. Just you don't have to. Know, and you're right. Like the payoff, even the idea of him looking at a picture of of Zed as he thinks of it, uh-huh. even that is ham fisted. But at least it's showing. And it, yeah, yeah, know. exactly. It's, it's yeah, it's not. Uh, but yes, we are focusing on something negative. Yeah, I do think the movie's amazing. It's it's really it's great. The I, best uh, performance I've ever seen Charlie Hunnam give. It's it's great. But uh, look, I'm not saying it's a like all time great performance. I said it's the best performance I've ever seen yeah. Charlie Hunnam give. And I think it is a very good performance in general. Um, I just mean that like I, a lot of, a I lot guess of people I want say, you to name the better Charlie Hunnam performance. I think the only one maybe giving it a run for its money is Nicholas Nickleby. I think he's very, very good in Nicholas Nickleby. I have to revisit that. Um, I remember liking that. And you know, and that's the thing is he has to carry both films. He has to carry on his shoulders. And I think he does both of them. And, uh, that's, uh, that's something because to be able to carry a Charles Dickens adaptation on your shoulders when the, uh, there's an ensemble in, that includes like Jim Broadbent and Christopher Plummer, that's tough to get people to pay attention to you at all. Uh, and then with this, where there's wonderful scenery, there are, int- there are interesting supporting characters. Uh, it would be easy for him to be swallowed up, but he wasn't like he asserts himself and I'm watching him and I really get a sense of who he is. Uh, and I feel like even as, as he ages, I think, I think he ages rather subtly and I, I think you can see it in his performance a little bit. And, uh, and yeah, and I do think that the, the photography is, is gorgeous without ever, right? Yes. I think it's gorgeous, but not in a super ostentatious way. It's a very, it's a, it's a muted beauty, you know? Yeah. And yet, um, here's another way that it doesn't feel that it's is apart from the classical films that it's uh right. paying tribute to is when when there are scenes that require action you know yeah. it feels it doesn't feel uh slow or stodgy the way that right. action movie action sequences in movies that are 50 60 years old yeah um can sometimes fail to get your heart racing. Right. But like, and this isn't really an accident. It's more of a, of a, of a suspense sequence. But when he's, 
uh, approaching the 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 tribe who were yeah. Th- I can't remember. Are they shooting bone arrows? Are they throwing spears? But he's holding up the Bible in front of him. You know, is it the Bible? Um, you know, I just assumed it was. I thought it was uh, like his journal or oh, something like sense. that. Yeah, but he's holding um, that up, and he's holding like a like a a rag or something like that, or uh, yeah. a bandana or uh, something. And that scene is so tense. Yeah, uh, and that and, we see it from and, far away, I think, is kind of awesome. Yeah. Um, one more thing about it, you know, who's great in the movie is Robert Pattinson. Yeah. It, but in the, uh, I feel like Robert Pattinson has gotten to the point that I think Kristen Stewart got to a year or two ago, uh, as far as, you know, cause their futures mm. will always be tied together because of the twilight Obviously. <laughs> franchise. But he, Robert Pattinson has got to the point where I'm no longer surprised that he's great. Right. You know what I mean? Like and now I just take for granted that Kristen Stewart's great with like the Rover. I was like, would you look at Robert Pattinson being yeah. awesome? And no, I never saw Cosmopolis. Yeah. That's what you're going to say. Cause I know you love it. Right. Um, so maybe the Rover was uh, already not surprising to you. Well, I think um, what's interesting to me is that it's not merely that he's giving in per- good performances. It's that he's turning in good supporting performances and that he's willing to do that. You know, he, he is a star yeah. and he could be a star. He could just keep doing that for the rest of his life and play boring characters. Yeah. Um, not, not always boring. I mean, his character in Cosmopolis is interesting, but that's not a conventional movie. Um, and so like by playing his character in the Rover is, is a complete character type of performance and right. with, his, with this as well. Well, here's, I'll say here's another difference though, is that I think, um, in, in the Rover, he is like sort of self-consciously undercutting his, good looks. Yeah. And in this feels much more subtle in that, like, I think a lot of people, maybe even me could go a couple scenes into his performance before you realize it's even Robert, Robert Pattinson. Yeah. Cause he's got a, you know, a dead cat on his face. Yeah. Certainly his first appearance. I didn't realize it immediately. Yeah. Um, and I will say that when he's, this sounds silly to say when he's got his hat on and he's got his big beard and he has like a certain and he just looks a little bit ratty, like certain angles. I'm like, he looks like Torgo from Manos, the hands of fate. Like there's no question about it. <laughs> I never saw that, but oh, okay. Uh, yeah. It's, it's uh, crazy. But this me. is a, uh, again, we'll move on, but this is a great character that our repentance is playing because he's a, a nerd mm-hmm. B a drunk and see a badass. It's a yeah. weird combination that he really hits uh, all three on the head. Right. And that's, and that's the thing is like you mix these three things together and you have a unique individual, yeah. you know, and that's what he is. And, and he's a guy that a drunk, nerdy, badass. Yeah. It's kind of how I like to think of myself or a ner- <laughs> or a, or a nerdy, badass drunk. Like there's a lot of difference yeah. or a drunk, badass nerd. Yeah. That's probably, yeah. That's how I see you. <laughs> eh, badass i'm pretty i'm pretty badass i guess so yeah you haven't seen um, a street fight it's <laughs> <laughs> true you bust out the brass knuckles um okay <laughs> push out my nostril with my thumb that sort of thing yeah absolutely just start talking on a brooklyn accent for some reason um keep asking <laughs> keep, keep asking people if they're wise guys um okay so, uh, oh, you only have one, right? So I'm yeah, going so again. Up next. Okay. I saw, I do not have the director's name in front of me, unfortunately, uh, a film called Churchill, okay. which is about Winston Churchill, uh, played by Brian Cox here. And this is about Winston Churchill um, in the few days leading up to D-Day. And he is very resistant to the idea because of certain uh, things that he witnessed uh, and was seen as responsible for in uh, World War One. And so he 
he keeps trying to undercut the the generals and say like we need to do this differently and they keep assuring him that no this is the way to do it and so he's just you know the film boils down to really one scene after another um of him of people whether it be his wife played by miranda richardson or the king played by james purefoy or general eisenhower played by um john slattery um various people trying to convince him that this is going to be okay and all that. Uh, so that's all well and good for the first, I'm going to say 45 minutes. You get some really good, really good scenes out of that and re- and great performances all around. And it's a, a movie that's beautiful to look at really well done cinematography. Like whether it's like really getting in close on these characters faces or far away and just kind of putting him, putting them in these iconic positions. Um, but Here's the problem. You and I and everybody watching that movie, we all know that D-Day was a success. Right. It was not the unmitigated failure that he thought it was going to be. So to see a character dig in his heels, and yes, we understand why, and it makes him seem somewhat humanitarian, but uh, to see him dig in his heels against something that we know worked, it really undercuts the idea of this guy as, as like a brilliant leader, a good status, uh, stri- uh, s- strategist. I was going to say, yeah, anyway, um, strategist, strategist. Um, and, and the fact that he just bloviates, bloviates at people and like yells at people. Like it, he just seems, and again, I understand why that he, he's worried about losing lives and all that, but he's, I don't think the director and screenwriter, I don't think their, their vision was to show uh, like a small childish petty side and narrow and, and short sighted side of Winston Churchill. But that is what I got. Like, this is a guy, as you know, this is a big problem I have with biopics and this is not a full on biopic. This is like, is like Capote or, or any of these other, or it's just a small section of time, very small in this case. Um, where it's like, okay, let's take a figure that everybody recognizes is great and really shaped history. Uh, let's do that. And, uh, but let's show them as, as humans. Let's go warts and all. It's like, okay, that's fine. Oh shit. You forgot to you forgot to, uh, to incorporate why we like them at all. Mm. Um, and so by the end of the film, it shows, you know, there's the handful of, of what do you call it? Cards? There at the end where it just says, you know, uh, D-Day oh, was yeah, a yeah. successful thing. And then it says uh, Winston Churchill was, went on to, you know, is considered maybe the greatest Britain of all time. And as I read that and I reflect on the movie, I'm like, why? Now you're just looking. Now it just looks like everybody uh, is dumb for considering this uh, fearful, uh, verbally abusive man as huh. be, who is uh, on the wrong side of history. Like, now we all look dumb for considering him a great person. So it's just, it's a film that does not seem to know what it is or if it's trying to do what it is, if it's trying to do something vaguely inspiring, uh, I feel like it is failing miserably. And that's unfortunate because Brian Cox turns in a great performance. And if this were just tweaked a little bit and I'm not saying you have to artificially make this guy great, but you also have to remember why we're watching a movie about him as opposed to just Joe Schmo. We're watching something about a great man, so at least acknowledge that there were good, uh, that there are uh, positive qualities to him. So it's very, it, 
the people that in the theater seemed to like it, but for some reason it just did not hit me right. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it definitely sounds like, I don't think like knowing about the success of D-Day itself is necessarily, uh, you know, poisonous to the movie. There's, you can make a good movie with the, where it puts you so much in the person's shoes that you forget. Yes, you know? absolutely. Um, this does not do that. Yeah. So the director's name is Jonathan is Jonathan Teplitsky. Okay. He's done a ton of, uh, British TV, um, the main movie that you might remember, even though I don't think anyone saw it from 2013 was called the railway man with Colin Firth and Nicole, F- Nicole. Kidman. Oh, I know that one. I didn't see it. I didn't but see it. Yeah. No. Um, well, and I'll say this in some ways it does. I can see it being the work of a TV person because it is in many ways, very small in scale, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, that's the other thing is the film. It has a theme laid out there right in front of it about what it costs to be a leader. Sometimes what it costs is, yeah, you're going to have blood on your hands. Mm -hmm. That's horrible. And you're not in any danger. You are sending people off to die. And that means if things go poorly, you are to blame. It also means that if, if things go well, then you're going to get the glory. But at the same time, it's just, if you're somebody who does feel responsible and is not cavalier about the idea of sending people off to die, then this is a a, a real personal, uh, tragedy for you. And that's actually the best scene in the film to me is between Churchill and, uh, the King of England, because these are two guys who both saw action in the first world war and they know what they're sending these people into. And they both so desperately wish that they didn't have to do this or that they could at least put themselves in danger as well as like military commanders. And, and so that, but like, and that scene happens about 40 minutes in. And I remember thinking like, this is really interesting because Hmm. people don't think about this. Uh, people are very quick to say like, ah, these politicians, they just send men off to die and uh, men and women off to die. It's like, that is true. Yes. But somebody has to do that. That is a job. And when the film is doing that, it's really interesting, but it, it abandons that pretty quick. And so this is what I mean is like, there are times when it's very intimate and it seems like what's going on in like these back rooms, these big men making decisions and it brings them down to a human scale. And so that's, and so it feels like TV in those moments, but in a good way. Uh, but again, the, the beautiful cinematography definitely, it escapes its, it, uh, the, the director's like TV roots. And so I, I can't recommend it highly enough from a visual standpoint. It's just the rest of it just did not do much for me. Um, all right. Uh, my one movie, uh, although I feel like we should it just occurring to me now, I was going to save it for the main episode, but we should mention Jonathan Demi, I guess. Um, yeah, cause that was yesterday as of the recording. It'd be weird. Yeah. I guess it'd be weird to, for us to not mention that Jonathan Demi passed, passed on. And I think, uh, maybe this is an all-pack conversation. We'll we'll cut this if you don't agree. But I think our next profile we should do Jonathan Demi. It's in like I'm three fine weeks. with that. I would need to see maybe one or two important films of his. I but, need to uh, see some of his early stuff. I've, I've been, yeah. I mean, maybe I'll try and get around to seeing Melvin and Howard before. Oh yeah, um, before then because I haven't seen I haven't seen anything pre uh, something wild. I think. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, Jonathan Demi was one of my favorites. I feel like I sort of. Um, came into being a cinephile 
not cineast right. listener, um, one listener who has clearly gotten under my skin. Uh, I came into being a film fan at the same around the same time. I realized that the Talking Heads are maybe one of nearly my favorite band of all time. Mm-hmm. Top three, easy, uh, no contest. Actually, top three. Um, uh, I'm going to say top two. Was the um, other one Smashing Pumpkins? No, it's Mountain Goats. Mountain Goats. Smashing right. Pumpkins were a big part of my childhood, and I still right. have a lot of. I have still have a soft spot for them, but they're not. Top five are probably. Hold on, let's go. Okay, here we go. Uh, in no particular order, Mountain Goats, Talking Heads, Ramones, Neil Young, Johnny Cash. All right, I would say that's my top five. So male centric, but that's fine. Uh, it is very male centric, but you'll notice two of those, uh, uh, Talking Heads and Neil Young. Are people that Jonathan Demme made cons? He made multiple That's interesting. Um, Neil Young uh, ones um, uh, with diminishing returns, actually. But we're here. We, we're here to celebrate his career. Um And so, stop making sense is something that it was a movie that I saw very early, and I'd probably seen. I'm, I'm sure there was something of Jonathan Demme's I had seen before then. Uh, I probably hadn't seen Sounds of the Lambs at that mm. point because my parents were very strict about R-rated movies and yeah. my. Um, I know my mom found Silence of the Lambs. She she thought it was a great movie, but I know she found it to be incredibly disturbing and upsetting. And so she is correct. And so yeah, yeah. So so my mom telling me not like that I couldn't watch Silence of the Lambs when I was a kid was not just because it was rated R, it's because she had seen it yeah. and that it, it had clearly shaken her to the core. Yeah. Um, so I, I did eventually get around to it. Uh, and then Beloved came out at around the time that I was finally able, yeah. you know, <laughs> like had my own car and was able to go see R rated movies. Um, and so, uh, Jonathan Demme's just like his career and the things that he was, uh, interested in, like coincided with like the time, a time in my life when you're at your most impressionable in terms of yeah. like discovering new art. And so like, um, I've considered myself a, an enormous Jonathan Demme fan, um, uh, for, you know, more than half of half of my life. Uh, even as, you know, uh, up until into the years of this podcast, Rachel getting married was yeah. my favorite film of 2008, right? Of 2008. Uh, yeah, that was my, my, my number one. Um, uh, and I, I don't think I've seen any of his documentaries. Um, oh yeah, you should see, um, yeah, there's a lot that I've missed, but there's like, uh, what's the one, the agronomist. That's a, yeah. that's a good one. Um, and there's a, n- a number of concert concert films, um, and things with like Neil Young that sort of blur the line between being like home movies and concert films. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, what was the other one I was going to say? Um, you and I are both, uh, in fact, I feel like it came out not that long ago. Uh, we're both, uh, uh, into the Manchurian candidate remake that he did. Yeah. I, a lot of people, I think they, they begrudge it not being the first one, but I feel like it's a really good updating mm-hmm. of it. And here's what I, so here's what I'll say is that I, I, I'm not sure if I would consider Jonathan Demme an auteur because I don't see a whole lot of similarity from one film to the next, except maybe this, and maybe this is enough. There's a real crackling en- energy to anything he makes, uh, whether it be Silence of the Lambs or Philadelphia or Beloved mm-hmm. uh, or Manchurian Canada. And I, I even saw a, a Master Builder. Um, oh, right. And which I saw as part of this Andre Gregory Wallace Shawn like mm-hmm. Criterion uh, box set. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a situation where he, 
he will make movies that could seem very turgid. You know, Beloved could absolutely seem like that, and, and a master builder could as well. But there's just this, as could Rachel getting married, but it's not. There's just this, there's a real vitality to it, and it just feels like like you are not, he's not going to let you sit back. He wants you paying attention and maybe being a little bit stressed at times. And when I think of something like The Manchurian Candidate, Denzel Washington's like diminishing sanity until he finally does just look like a crazy man on the street is so effective and so impactful. And I thought like, this is a film that absolutely could have just tried to harken back to the original, which admittedly is also crackling with energy. Um, it could have just tried to do that and just could have been what it is, but he doesn't, he's not content to let movies just be what they could be. He wants to make them into something really special and just grab the audience's attention. Now I'm not sure if that's quite enough to make him an, an auteur. Cause I can't think of any particular visual things that he does, but, and he's, he's a good actor's director as well. But along those lines, I would compare him to somebody like Sidney Lumet. Um, and so I'm not sure if I consider him much of an auteur, uh, but I'm not sure if he's quite a journeyman either, because I don't think he just adapts to whatever, genre he's working in and then just does all of that. He still brings a lot of himself to these movies. And so he's a, he was a very special filmmaker, I think. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I can see, yeah, uh, arguments for, um, him not coming across as an auteur, but I think there's a, um, musicality to a lot of his, his sure. movies. And then I also, uh, I was listening to what you're talking about. I was also looking up, I want to read something that I think, uh, really, uh, um, gets at the heart of what Jonathan Demme is. And this is from Pauline Kale's review of something wild. Okay. Someone else tweeted this earlier this week. Uh, she says, I can't think of any other director who is so instinctively, instinctively and democratically interested in everybody. He shows you each time a new face appears, it's looked at with such, such absorption and delight that you almost think the movie will flit off and tell this person's story. And I think that's, uh, that's about right. And I'd say like Rachel getting married is a really good example of that. You know, the idea that, that we're allowed to have, you know, that we let Bill Irwin have his own, yeah. his, his own moments. And who is it? Rosemary DeWitt, right? Who plays Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that she has allowed her moments. And Deborah Winger, is it like, it is officially about Anne Hathaway's character, but any, but everybody has a story to tell. And he's going to hint at that, sometimes more than hint, but he will give the impression that like he could have made five movies in, yeah. He could have made like his own little cinematic universe around Rachel getting married, but I guess he could have done that with anybody. A yeah. uh, master builder feels like that a lot. And he could also balance um, different tones uh, yeah. very well. I know and I'm, <laughs> I've always been a bit of an apologist for the truth about Charlie, his charade remake. Sure. I know it's messy, but uh, I do like its tonal shifts. But to go back to something wild, this is a movie that starts off as sort of a, you know, Desperately Seeking Susan, which is also another great movie, but sort of like comedy of manners, fish out of water type thing. Mm -hmm. And then halfway through becomes a horror infused like thriller when when Hmm. Ray Liotta's character gets introduced and turns the whole movie uh, dangerous. It's uh, it's the greatest performance of Ray Liotta's career, maybe, I think. Um, And I haven't seen it, so uh, I I can't speak to that. My vote is probably Narc. I think he's... Yeah. pretty amazing in dark but all right so i i didn't want to go without having mentioned jonathan demi it's Indeed. weird that we've fitted in here but it just i was yeah. literally like while you were talking i saw your dvd of rachel getting married and i got sad all of a sudden yeah and i was like we should 
we should talk about that. Um, anyway, okay. So the one movie that I watched uh, this week, I was out of town. We'll talk. I'll talk about it a little bit uh, on the on the main podcast. So I uh, didn't spend much time in front of a you know a movie screen uh, this week. But I watched at home. I watched a, a Blu-ray of a 1960 film called Private Property that was uh, recently just just last year. Uh, remastered and put out on Blu-ray. I'll, I'll, I'll review the Blu-ray, uh, even though it's been out for like six months now. That's fine. Uh, it's still available. Uh, it was remastered and put on Blu-ray by Cinelicious Picks, um, who are a really awesome uh, organization in this sort of new, this sort of new way of um, look. You know, on the one hand, I decry the way that like the major studios have lost interest in, or at least a lot of the major studios have lost interest in, you know, uh, restoring and 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 uh, utilizing their libraries. Mm-hmm. But what it's led to is this whole arena of companies. Um, like obviously, Criterion's been doing it for a long time, but com- but you know, Arrow and Twilight and all those uh, Twilight Time and all that who. Um, license these things and right. pay for restorations themselves. And then there'll be, you know, Janus films will do it and there'll be a short theatrical run and there'll be, um, a, 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 a Blu-ray release usually, you know, and Cinelicious has done the, a great job. They've come along and said, let's save costs by making this one operate, one operation. So Cinelicious picks is both like a, you know, a, a place that remasters movies. They have all the equipment, they have restoration and all that stuff. And they're a theatrical and Blu-ray distribution company. It's, it's all in one building. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I saw them talk at, um, at, uh, the real thing last year. I probably talked about it, uh, on, uh, the podcast when we talked about, the I believe thing. so. Yes. Um, yeah. And they showed actually a clip from private property. And so I've been meaning to get around to it. And I watched, so I watched private property. Uh, it's a 1960, um, independent film, um, and it is, uh, I, I don't, I mean, it's a, it's a crime film, I guess. So I don't, I guess, and it's in black and white and it's from 1960. So I guess it sort of gets lumped in with like noir, but it's, it's, um, it's a really perfectly realized and nasty as fuck little movie. Okay. Um, so the, uh, an actor named Corey Allen, who's amazing. Do you know him? Mm. Uh, he was in other stuff. I looked him up. He's in other stuff. He actually went on to direct a lot of television. Um, but so an actor named Corey Allen and the great Warren Oates oh, yeah. play criminal partners. <laughs> Warren Oates winds up being in a lot of trashy little movies. Yeah. So there, we, we don't really get a sense of, we just meet them sort of like as drifters, mm-hmm. uh, and they have switchblades and they're clearly dangerous. Um, and, uh, they find themselves in like the Hollywood Hills, they um need a place to just crash for a while so they they and they're walking they realize this one you know big mansion on the hollywood hills is uh is empty so they scale the fence and they essentially move into this mm-hmm. empty this squat squatting in this like empty mansion and um then there's a there's a couple uh with you know a wealthy couple with no kids living next door the husband works the the wife is a uh, you know sort of stereotypically uh, restless and sexually frustrated. Yeah. Um, but you know, um, uh, you know, maybe a little bit, uh, sheltered, uh, yeah. wife and, uh, Warren Oates character is maybe a little bit of a simpleton and also a virgin. That's something that was established very early on. Okay. And so this is 1960, 1960. Hmm. And so 
Corey Allen's character comes up with this thing of like basically I'm gonna seduce this woman for you. Like you're gonna lose your virginity to this woman. Yeah. And Warren Oates at first he doesn't say it like this, but he essentially says, "Why don't I just rape her?" Uh, and um, and uh, I feel like that's a subtext for almost any Warren Oates. Uh, <laughs> that's quote. He, yeah, that's something that he uh, uh, that he's uh, that he says, and Corey Allen not necessarily being anti-rape basically says, well, no, your first time shouldn't be like that. <laughs> like I said, this is a nasty movie. Yeah. Um, but it basically comes down once it gets, once it gets that storyline. So the movie's only like 80 minutes. Once it gets that premise in place, it just boils down to a bunch of two and three hander scenes because mm-hmm. the husband's at work all day. So, you know, Corey Allen sort of pretends to be a gardener, pretends his friend Warren notes is a, you know, a traveling salesman or whatever. They're just hanging out with this woman and every scene, uh, she's played by, um, I'm forgetting her first name, something Manx. The dire- uh, director's name is Leslie Stevens. Kate, Kate Manx, I think is her name. Um, I, I didn't know her from anything else, but she's, uh, absolutely electric, uh, on the screen. And so is Corey Allen, who's like torn between like this. He wants to like provide this woman for his friend. Yeah. But also he's like developing feelings for her, but also he's a fucking psychopath at the same time. And so um, it has it's just a a great mastery of tone. And it's like uh, it's the kind of movie that, you know, it has this salacious premise. And like I said, it's technically a crime movie, but there's not a lot up until it, you know, it has a big finale. But it's not a lot of, you know, big things that happen. It's the kind of movie that is basically just two or three people talking and you're on the edge of your seat the entire time because like, you know, uh, that on the one hand, you're like, there's so much chemistry between these characters. Like I want Corey Allen and Kate Mangus to get together, but then it's like, Oh right. He's fucking nuts. (laughs) Like I want her to be safe. And, uh, Warren Oates, I don't know if it would be better if he fell off a cliff or if he were, you know, uh, if someone came in and gave him a hug because he's like, he's somewhere in between, like would the world be better if you were taken care of or taken care of? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Uh, it's a fantastic movie, uh, private property. It's on Blu-ray. I'll write a review on the website. I meant to do it, uh, this week, but like I said, I was out of time. Uh, speaking of such things, I actually will mention, uh, because this goes up tonight, I will mention that if you're in the Los Angeles area tomorrow night at either the Egyptian or the arrow, I don't remember which American cinema tech theater, uh, it is showing. Uh, but there is a double feature on Friday Uh of a simple plan. And one false move. Oh, cool. So uh, check those out. I am unable to make a simple plan. I might try to go see one false move just because I've never seen it on the big screen. I bet it's pretty good. Yeah. So if you're in Los Angeles, uh, do check that out. We were talking about it recently because we profiled Bill Paxton. Yeah. And it's maybe my favorite performance of his. And it's just a one false move. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. But uh, good stuff. Okay. So. Uh, this is a rewatch for me, obviously, okay. for as a function of my film history class. Uh, Citizen Kane. <laughs> um, seen it before? Yeah. A couple of times, once or twice. Um, you know, I should mention, um, uh, I won't mention this in the TV thing, but I am rewatching Twin Peaks. In, in, okay. Uh, I almost and, did. Uh, so I'm rewatching Twin Peaks, and I'm realizing how many of the Greg Tolan type deep focus shots, mm. or like mixed, fo- like where it's clear, it's like two shots yeah. placed together. So it'll be like Benjamin Horn on the phone. Oh yeah, in, in super close up on the left side of the screen, and then Audrey entering his office. Yeah, you know, 
20 feet, 20, 25 feet away, but also in perfect focus. Uh, and so I was actually, I guess it just mentioning that I was just thinking about Citizen Kane this weekend because, hmm. uh, Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks of all things, things made me think of Greg Toland and Citizen Kane. And I did last quarter, I watched, uh, best years of our lives and he's the DP for that. And it's, and it's, he has a lot of that in there as well, though. I don't think of that as sh- it's not a film that is as showy as right. citizen Kane, but it, there's still a lot of that uh, deep focus stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, what am I going to say about citizen Kane that other people, including me have not already said, except that it's helpful. So I wasn't able to watch it last quarter when I was TAing because I was, uh, I was, uh, doing other things that day. But, you know, in my section, I've been teaching my students about, you know, it's a, it's a film, it's a film, it's an American film history class. And so I've been talking about like the contributions from other countries. So I'm talking about German expressionism. I just started uh, this week. I talked about Russian montage. I'm going to talk about Italian neorealism. I'll be talking about like uh, Japanese cinema of the, uh, of the sixties, fifties and sixties. And, um, and so watching all, uh, you know, talking about mise-en-scene, the use of the frame and, and the various things I've been talking about leading up to Citizen Kane, even for me, even though I know all this stuff, but af- having to actually engage with it in a way in which I'm communicating it to other people. And as I was watching it, I thought like, man, look at those angles, you know, <laughs> and now it's, and that's, you know, kind of a, a, a small way of putting it, but it just really, people are correct when they say that Kane really was the culmination of every filmmaking element up to that point, including, and maybe especially sound, um, just every, like he just, Orson Welles was young and he was just drinking in everything film related Mm -hmm. and just trying to incorporate it all and do so in a way that is in many ways seamless. There are shots, you know, there's the famous shot of him giving that speech. And then you actually see it from up above where boss Jim Gettys is watching it. And that's like a, a composite shot of like three or four different layers mm. uh, because that hall did not actually exist. And so using the optical printer, he put it all together and it's literally invisible. So you're not meant to think of that as a special effect shot at all. It's just meant to, you're just meant to be co- the, the, the largeness of the room is meant to be conveyed and that's it. Um, so just, I, I just love it so much. It's showy, but it's not nearly as showy as it seems like it could be given how much he used the optical printer. Uh, and then the other thing from a story standpoint that I think I realized before, but this time it really hit me is that when Kane first meets Susan Alexander, the, the woman that he will have an affair with, uh, by his own admission, he is on his way to a warehouse to look through his mother's things. He is on his way yeah. to finding Rosebud. He doesn't know at that moment that that's what he's looking for, but you know, that's the word on his lips at the end of his life. And so like who, and then he meets this woman has an affair with her, ruins his marriage, ruins his political life. Not to, not to imply it's her fault. It's his. Um, sure. And if he, and so if he had found Rosebud in that moment, if he had found the sled, then I think an argument could be made that it wouldn't fix all of his problems. It would just be like, Oh, it's nice to know I haven't actually lost this thing. And that can provide a certain amount of stability, but it's not merely that it's that if he had done this thing, if he had accomplished this, if he had not been, you know, splashed with mud, 
then his life would have taken on a very different trajectory. Not that success in politics would have made him any happier, obviously, but, uh, but that realization is just such a neat little script element. Mm -hmm. Um, just that this chance encounter would have just changes the complete, the entire trajectory of his film of, of his life and the film. Um, the way that screenplay fits together is, is so perfect. It's um, pretty masterful. Yeah. I, I don't know what, uh, what else to say that we haven't said yeah. before, except I guess I sometimes want to like talk to our younger listeners. <laughs> sure. Like there are certain movies like citizen Kane that you, if you haven't seen it yet, you probably heard a lot of great things. Yeah. Um, but don't, I, I think don't ever sit down going, I'm about to watch a great movie. Right. If you haven't seen it before, watch yeah. it on its own terms. And I think Citizen Kane will actually be greater if you're not approaching it as a great movie, because there's a way that movies, you know, can, even if you haven't seen it already, can, can seem sort of trapped in amber. Sure. And, um, it's good to remember that Citizen Kane, um, was, uh, a, live wire, you know, piece of art when it came out. It was, yeah. it didn't come into the world with all the respectability that it's treated with now. Yeah. I, I, in a way it's, it's one of the sad elements of being considered for a long time, the best movie ever made because people are like, all right, impress me. Uh-huh. But they, you know, they come in with that and like, nothing is going to live up to that. And so, um, so that is unfortunate. And so I'm curious, so I'm curious to talk to my students on Tuesday, um, because I'm sure for many of them it's their first time seeing it. And I don't know for younger people who aren't film people. That's the other thing. My students are mostly not film people. I'm curious to know if they have the association with citizen Kane, that it is the best movie of all time. Right. You know, as far as, as far as they know, at least in this class, it's a film worth showing. And that's kind of it. Yeah. And so I well, really you show them for context, the kids in the hell kids in the hall sketch where Dave Foley is clearly <laughs> talking right. about citizen Kane, but yeah. keep, keeps insisting it's not citizen Kane. Yes. And then Kevin, uh, Kevin McDonald, I think stabs him through the hand. Yes. With a knife. <laughs> yes. He goes, he goes, no, that's not what I'm thinking of. And he goes, he goes, I think what you're thinking of is a mortician. You're looking for a mortician and just stabs him over and over that's again. Right. Um, anyway, uh, and just, you know, with that high pitched yelling voice that only Kevin McDonald could do, yeah. but yeah, it's, uh, and then there's always that, uh, there's two things that I want to mention that I always enjoy mentioning that are just fun facts. One is, you know, there's the there's that thing about 15 minutes before the movie is over where there's that screeching bird. I don't uh, know about this. Actually. There's a transition as the butler is about to tell his story. And he says, he's like, he goes, yeah, he did a lot of weird things. Like when his wife left, you know, when Susan Alexander, uh-huh. when she leaves him, it's right before he destroys that room. Right. So he says, like when his wife died and then there's like a cockatoo on the, on the screen and it screeches this okay. loud screech and then yeah. flies away. It's just like, Oh, like a bird flying the coop, I guess maybe it's a very unusual thing. And in interviews, not, this is not that this means that this is, that this is what he meant. Yeah. But, there's a lot of uh, self mythologizing going yeah. on with Orson Welles. And he just lied to keep inter- interviews interesting. Yeah. I can't um, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so when someone said like, why did you do that? Have that loud screeching bird? He goes, well, the movie had been going for a while. I figure I might as well wake people up. <laughs> and so that's one thing. Uh, and then the other is that you know, Wells is somebody who his, his entire life, he fought for a certain degree of legitimacy. And so he wanted to be seen as someone that could do everything. Uh, so he fought for 
you know, sole credit of this for the screenplay, uh, and, and had to share it with Herman Mankiewicz. Uh, you know, he liked being seen as the guy that can do all of these things. And yet the absolute last card is directed by Orson Welles, photographed by Greg Toland. He's yeah. literally willing to share, like that's how much he valued Greg Toland is he shared yeah. his directing card with, with him. You know, and yeah. it's and it's true. Like Greg Tolan's uh, contribution is invaluable yeah. uh, to that film. It doesn't. It just doesn't look like he knew what he Wells knew what he wanted, and Tolan knew how to get it. And I don't know if any other uh, DP would have been a willing to just take orders from this little upstart, uh-huh. uh, but also maybe wouldn't have been able to to capture what Wells had in his mind because Tolan was doing amazing things with photography at the time. But anyway, okay, so Citizen Kane, seek uh, it out. Uh, I think you've got one, one more movie. One more movie. Uh, it is uh, James Gunn, not Sean Gunn, James Gunn, right? Yeah, Sean Gunn is the, his brother. Yeah, okay, sorry. From uh, Gilmore Girls. Yes. And uh, played two different characters on Angel. Is that true? Really? Yes, not something that's something that used to happen in TV a lot. If yeah, Law and Order like the, happened all the time. Yeah, but uh, uh, on Angel, he one episode each, but two different characters. The difference is in in one of them, I can't remember who was the first or second one. In the second one, he's in like complete like demon makeup. You wouldn't even oh, okay. you kind of had to know it was him to know it was him. So I okay. guess they felt like they could get away with it. Uh, well, he has a larger role in this film, uh, which is kind of nice. It's, okay. uh, but anyway, I don't think you said the name of the movie. Yeah, James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Now, David, I, you know, and I think the listener knows that I did not love the first Guardians of the Galaxy. It put me very much in the minority. Uh, some people just loved that movie and said, like, "Oh, this is so refreshing." It's like, well, it's different, yes, but it has a yawn of a villain. Not that that necessarily matters, but uh, it can make a difference. Like if the, if the villain has a pulse, it actually does help, um, the, the, the heroes as well. Um, this film I liked much, much more. Uh, I went in really not expecting much, but, uh, it won me, it has a wonderful opening credit sequence, uh, that shows some of the, some of the goofy humor of James Gunn and, there's some, there are some extraneous things that, uh, that I feel like are probably more about the Marvel universe and introducing new characters that might right. fe- might factor more into other films. In fact, I, f- I'm sure that's possible. Like there's a character played by Sylvester Stallone, who's in basically two scenes. Uh, and it feels like, mm, I, I get the feeling this character, you're not going to, and the scenes aren't that remarkable either. So it's like, all right, I'm, I'm guessing he's going to play a bigger role in another film. Otherwise, this is weird. Really? Yeah. That would be my assumption. That's um, fun, though. Like, yeah. Right? So it's it would be part of the Marvel it, Universe? It would be, except he's really not that great of an actor. That, I think that's not true. I think I, he's... Well, I think I he's mean, one I of those lo- actors who is... Um, what's, I, let's say, like... Um, narrow but deep. Like I think there's a yes. there's a limited range that he can play. But when he's yeah. in, when he's playing a character that's his type of character, yes, he can really get it. Like obviously Rocky. Yeah. Oh, it's. I mean, I love him in Creed. I think I think he was robbed of best supporting actor. Uh, <laughs> you know. And but what I'll say is that like 
I agree with you. I think he's great in the right role and this could be the right role. There's just not much for him. Okay. So there's nothing for him to really dig into, but no, no, you've also got, uh, in this movie, I, I haven't seen it. Um, uh, but, uh, the actress, uh, Elizabeth Debicki, who was on that, uh, uh, AMC miniseries, the night manager with, uh, oh, Tom okay. Wilson. she's, uh, she's terrific. I don't know if she's good in this. Uh, she's the woman who's all gold. Got it. Yes, she is very good. Okay, yeah. Uh, I like her a lot. And she that's a hard role to play, too. When you when you watch it, you'll know what I mean. Like, she has to be, you know, essentially like the dean of a college, just perpetually foiled, uh, you know, <laughs> essentially shaking her fist and saying, Guardians! Uh, it's not exactly that, but it's not far off either. Um, and you know what? It's hard for me. I try to... M- push my uh comic book nerd stuff out of the way because i haven't been an actual nerd in a long time but there is as we were as we're leading up to these infinity war movies there's one element that has never been that has not been introduced and i forgot about it and in this movie they introduce the last thing that is pivotal to the infinity movies okay and i won't say what it is okay um but it's one of those things that once they say it, I'm like, right, of course. How could I have not thought of that? And how are they going to do this now? So I'm, it, but it excited me. Um, but I will say that uh, expanded role for Michael Rooker, always a good, always a good call. Yeah, um, good way to go. There's some really nice action sequences. Kurt Russell plays this character ego who i know as ego the living planet and it turns out they don't call him the living planet but he is in fact a living planet his his physical form is like a projection of this planet that is in fact alive and occasionally has a face he's when kurt russell's walking around Mm -hmm. the planet that is him is still in orbit somewhere yes and so he's just okay yes he can't stray too far from the planet uh but yeah and so then he then they go to the planet and you get some really beautiful visuals um and there are some nice action sequences i think they do push certain things a little bit too hard like the banter between characters um and the idea that the banter occasionally like escalates to be a genuine argument but i feel like the argument doesn't fit completely right i don't know it just i have a hard time buying it but um but there's still there's natural chemistry between these actors and uh and i will say as always drax just gets me that's like, dave bautista yeah because they do a thing with him because his whole thing was he has really no inner monologue he takes everything literally and but he's also his his horizons are expanding a little bit so when he laughs, you know, so he, I don't remember him really laughing in the first film, but in this, he does I laugh. I still haven't seen the first film. Oh, okay. It's, people love it. I think it's yeah. fine. It definitely, it, it definitely feels more like a setup and this is a payoff. This feels I, genuinely like a volume two, not a completely separate right, adventure. Okay. There's a lot of car- across, uh, carryover from the first one. I want to weigh in on Dave Bautista when you finish your thought about him laughing. Well, there's... The, whether he's laughing or like screaming in pain, it is unnaturally, as far as we know, it's unnaturally big. And it's because like, yeah, he doesn't have filters. So if he's going to laugh, it will be the biggest laugh in the world. If he's, and there comes a moment when he gets, it's very funny. He gets stabbed and he's kind of off. He gets stabbed by accident and Uh and it's, and he's kind of off in the background and the way he is yelling is hilarious because it is, it's just like, 
you know what? It's like the, the guy yelling in, um, Miller's crossing there at the end as the, as the Dane is getting killed, just like that. Ah, ah, just, (laughs) just that. And I think, and Dave Bautista just like, he locks into, he latched onto that character and he knows how to play him. You know, to me, the, the mark of a great performance is if I cannot imagine anybody else, no matter how good an actor playing that character. And I cannot imagine anybody else playing that character. I'm happy to hear that because I was at the, um, back when I used to go to the Hall H panels, the mm-hmm. big ones, uh, I was at the Marvel Hall H panel yeah. when they brought out the Guardians, when they had just started filming the first one. Right. And um, uh, Dave Bautista, this is going to be uh, not the adjective you'd expect for a man who looks like him. Yeah. But Dave Bautista was adorable. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> um, and uh, he, he, he was like, cause he's a wrestler, right? Yeah. And he was like, uh, he was so, he's a huge, huge man. Yeah. And he was so humble when he was at, uh, at Hall H because he was like, these are all real actors. I can't believe I get to do this. Yeah. I just hope I don't mess this up was essentially his whole demeanor. Yeah. And, uh, everyone seems to like him. So I, I feel really happy when people, <laughs> when people yeah. like him. It's a, it's a great performance and a, and a really well put together character. I think they use baby Groot really well. I remember just thinking like, there's not going to be anything to this character, but they use him very well in a number of really good comedic comedic sequences. There's, like I said, there's a lot of extraneous stuff that maybe isn't necessary, and there are times when maybe the humor undercuts the the stakes a little bit. But I really, it just felt like a more complete film than the first now, one to me. Who does Sean Gunn play? Uh-huh. He plays, uh, uh, um, Michael Rooker's like right hand man. Okay. Because uh, what I learned, I know you don't read Entertainment Weekly anymore. Right. What I learned from Entertainment Weekly is during filming, Sean Gunn does the Rocket Raccoon. Yes, yes. That will later be done by Bradley Cooper. You yeah. knew that. I did. Yes, I did know that. And uh, and Rocket has given some good stuff uh, in this as well. And I feel like uh, I think in the first film, I think I did not acknowledge enough what Bradley Cooper was doing with his uh, characterization. And maybe it's that he's just allowed to do more of it in this film, or maybe I'm just noticing it more, but he, or it could be that he's a better actor than he was, uh, and has been able to, and has gotten to do more in the last three years. Uh, but his performance really is solid as well. So just, I don't know, to me, everything that the first film tried to be and occasionally was this film absolutely is. And so I'm, but at the same time, I was talking with a friend of the show, Aaron Neuwirth, uh, who was at the screening, and he thought, and I liked this one a lot more, and he said he actually thinks this one is, is a little bit worse. So uh, I'm curious to know what people will think. Yeah, the Twitter reaction seemed, seemed positive. Now, you know, I um, uh, had a, a Sean Gunn sighting oh, okay. uh, uh, last month. We were actually at the same bar on St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know this is a game we do sometimes. I had another, I had another uh, celebrity sighting just last week before I left for. Okay. Uh, when I was in, in uh, this was in Studio City. Just, I was driving one way. This person was driving the other way. Ooh, on, a driving on, thing on okay. cold water. Um, okay. Uh, but it was morning rush hour, so I was right next to this person for an extended period of time. So I was able to confirm. You just stared this. at them the whole time. <laughs> Almost. Um, this is someone that I think is cool, but I don't. I'm not sure where you stand on this person. You will, you definitely know who he is though. Do you want to try and? It is a him. It is a him. It is an actor. It is an actor. Yeah. Primarily movies. I would say 
man, I, this might be a guy who's right on the on the cusp because he's he's been in a bunch of movies, um, uh, but he's also uh, attached to. He had a recurring, a long recurring role on an '80s uh, TV show. Um, recurring 80s, is '80s into the '90s. Um, that he is very much associated with. Okay. Um, recurring. Does that mean like, uh, just showed up regularly like Wayne Knight on Seinfeld or like an actual char- full on character uh, recurring? I'm going to say it's like, it's like Wayne Knight, but I'm, I'm going to guess he probably did more episodes of this show than Wayne Knight did of, of Seinfeld because there was a stretch of, of episodes there where he was in a lot. Okay. And this is a show that went, that was definitely on in the eighties, maybe into the nineties. It, it was, yeah, it was definitely into the nineties. Okay. Uh, was definitely. it a drama? No, the, a, this guy is definitely a comedic actor. Comedic known actor. for comedy. Okay. Is the show cheers? Nope. Okay. I think I might be out of TV shows from that period. Uh, yeah, I think it, it went further into the nineties than cheers. Okay. Now when you say he's on the cusp, does that mean that he is currently transitioning into movies and has been the last few years, or he's a full on movie actor at this point. He's a movie, but he's probably thought of more. Yeah. Cause he's a movie character actor and he's a character actor in the show too. Okay. Um, so it's hard to, hard to say. I don't know. He hasn't had many lead roles. I'm always terrible at these games. Cause I, cause there are so many different types of questions to ask. Yeah. Uh, he has, has he ever been nominated for an Oscar? Uh, not that I, no, I don't think so. Okay. Almost, almost certainly not. Okay. Uh, has he been, he might've any... been nominated for an independent spirit award. Okay. Stands to reason. I feel like that might have been made, just made things more confusing. <laughs> okay. Um, has he been in any major blockbusters? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a one that he has a large comedic sidekick role in that he is also very associated with. Okay. I would say it might be the movie he's most associated with. Okay. Um, hmm. Is that a, is that a singular film or is it part of a franchise? Sing, single film. Okay. Did it come out in the last five years? Oh no, no. This is a film from the nineties. A film from the nineties, and he's comedic. He's comedic. Is this movie comedic? Uh, it's not where you'd find it in the. You wouldn't find it in comedy in the video okay. store. It has a lot of comedy in it, partially from him. Okay. Hmm. And it's singular. Yeah, not a franchise. Let's see. And, and my first thought is like, is like, oh, maybe Independence Day. Like, no, there's <laughs> another one now. Damn it. Yeah, okay. Oh, boy. Uh, th- oh, this is going to be rough. Pre-Independence Day. This Pre-Independence Day. Okay. So. I feel like you were closer with the sitcom thing. I know, but I, re- I literally cannot think of anything beyond Cheers from the 80s into the 90s. Think of major American. There's a clue that has to do with the sitcom that would absolutely give it away. Is um, it the Cosby show? No. Damn it. Uh, let's see. It's not small wonder. <laughs> no, think about the type of thing you're likely to see reruns of a lot. Not mash, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that didn't go into the nineties. Um, yeah, Post mash. It's weird. I'm having. A, I'm. I'm only thinking in terms of like dramas, like L.A. Law, yeah, no. and and uh, Saint Elsewhere and stuff like that. So I'm having a hard time, but if you say the show, I'll know it. Is that, is that the situation? I would think so. Uh, yeah. If I said the show, given the clues that I have given so far, okay. you would be able to figure out who it is. Was the show? No, it wouldn't have been on HBO. They weren't really doing TV at the time. No, right? I can tell you it was on ABC. It was on ABC. 
All right. Was it uh, was it part of the TGIF lineup? Uh, no. Okay. Damn it. This is frustrating. I don't know what to do now. I don't know where to go. Joss Whedon wrote for this sitcom. Yeah, you'd think that'd be more helpful. Is it? Uh, is it Golden Girls? No. Is it? Why did my mind go to Empty Nest? Is it Empty Nest? <laughs> because Empty Nest is a Golden Girls spinoff. <laughs> oh, was it really? Yeah. Hey, all right. Good for me. I knew that and didn't know I knew it. Uh, um, okay. Let's see. Listeners are probably furious, but I'm okay with that. Um, we'll get to TV in a moment, which you don't care about anyway. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe we're into TV at we the moment. We are into sort TV. Of. Here we are. Um, okay. Let's okay. see. You know what? I had it. I, I said Golden Girls. Uh, is it uh, Facts of Life? No. But growing you, pains no so you're right with the female centric abc which golden girls is on nbc by the way right. okay um it's not who's the boss no okay better than that this is a respected sitcom designing women <laughs> no fuck more respected than that it wasn't me shock taylor damn it <laughs> i was so excited you thought it was me shock taylor? no but i was like but you said female centric and respectable and i thought like well hey you don't get more respectable than the sugar bakers um so no, i mean this is a, among people who like tv this is oh. a sitcom that is well thought of. okay i see i see um Let's see. And it is female centric by, by which you mean like a predominantly female cast or like it, or the main character is the main female. character is a woman. Okay. Um, gosh. And Joss Whedon wrote on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I'm going to have to probably go more from the blockbuster angle. Okay. Let's go back to the blockbuster. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, pre independence day. Yeah. Let's call it an action comedy, action comedy in the nineties. Yes. So between 1990 and about 96 yeah, is what we're talking there. about. Okay. Do I like this movie? I think so. Hmm. I've never actually seen this movie. Oh, boy. Okay. And it's not a franchise. That's tough. No, it's not a franchise. Is it The Fugitive? Nope. Okay. Uh, Again, no, of course. Comedy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. All right. Um, is it like a buddy comedy or a buddy action comedy? N- no, I mean... This character is sort of, from what I understand, I haven't actually seen the movie, is in sort of a sidekick role, but he's like definitely like a diminished. He's not on equal terms with okay. the other guy. Okay. You know what I mean? It's not Rob Schneider, is it? No. Okay. Um, sorry, I was thinking of Judge Dredd and Demolition Man. It's weird that he's in both of those. Yeah, uh, that is weird. I never saw okay. Judge Dredd. I'm, I'm close to giving up because my I'm, I'm hitting a mental block. Um, with both sitcoms and I feel like I've named every 80s sitcom that I okay, can think of. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and give you the clue that I think will give it away Okay, about the sitcom. Okay. Part of the reason he was on that sitcom for so long, even though he didn't play the lead character's husband on the sitcom, he was married to the lead of the sitcom. You'd think that would be helpful. It is not. Hmm. I don't keep track of They were of a celebrity. famous couple, like... Or maybe I should say they were an infamous couple. Oh, okay. So let's see. Two comedians. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle? No. Um, Two comedians slash comic actors who were infamous on their own in the late 80s and early 90s. She had her own sitcom for years, a well-respected sitcom on ABC that Josh Whedon wrote on. He had a recurring role where he actually played not her husband because her husband was played by uh, another well-respected actor. Um, he played her friend's husband. Shit. Hang on, hang on, hang on. 
Oh no, hang on. Like it is right there. And I can grab it. I cannot grab it. Which it is, thing it is, is right gone. There, the name of the sitcom or the name of the actor? Uh, sitcom and then actor. Like that's that's what it's gonna come to. But I think I'm I think I'm out. I, I gotta give you more uh, uh, what about the blockbuster? You can give me a hint uh, about the blockbuster. Oh, I can give you a hint about, about the blockbuster. Okay. We talked about it recently because of another character actor whom we did a profile of who has also has a very showy role in this movie. True Lies? True Lies. Tom Arnold? Tom Arnold. Oh, shit. <laughs> I saw. I was next to Tom Arnold in traffic for the length That's, of the stoplight. Okay. Yeah, I never would have gotten True Lies. Um, yeah, Roseanne. Okay. Roseanne, yes. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was, exciting. it's odd. I don't think of Tom Arnold in regard to Roseanne, but of course he is. Uh, that's how people know him. That's how people knew him. Um, the time, yeah. And he played Arnie, right? Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. And so, um, Tom Arnold is a, is a shockingly good actor. Like you remember oh, yeah. he was in, and that's why I'm saying, I think I said maybe independent spirit because for happy endings, was he nominated for independent spirit for that? The Don Ruse movie? I don't actually know. Um, but I remember he was in touch uh, and he's great in that. He was in a movie called Animal Factory that you and I watched. Yeah, that's right. And he just there's a there's a quality to him that just lends itself to absolute psychopaths. And he was in a movie called Big Bully that isn't that good, but he's great in it. Um, and I remember he I listened to him on Never Not Funny, and he is he is hilarious just conversationally as well. Um, that's really exciting. Were you excited when you saw him? Did, Very you, did you make eye contact? Uh, no, I didn't want to because that's he was, probably a like, good call. We're like in opposite lanes. He was literally three feet from me yeah. and cleaning his horn room glasses that's, because he wear that's his like signature now. Yeah. He was nominated for a satellite award for happy endings. What okay. are the satellite awards? I think those don't exist anymore, but maybe I'm wrong. It's just there was one there was some award okay. show in the last few years that was uh kind of debunked and went away. Um like they were nominating things that nobody voting could have possibly seen. But I don't think that I there might be the satellites, it's something like that. But anyway. Uh we should move on. Uh Okay, yeah. The satellite awards is award ceremony presented by the International Press Academy. Okay, I think so I that guess might it was be like it. a Golden Globe wannabe. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, but no, it still does exist. They had them okay. in February. All right. I must be thinking of something else anyway. Um, okay. But yeah, well that's, that's that is very exciting. I'm sorry. I mean, I guess I kind of got it. Yeah. Um, I guess you said Bill Paxton, which led to true lies, which led to, okay. All right. That's, yeah. No, I didn't tell you Tom. That's Arnold. true. So, okay. Yeah. All right. You got it. Um, my other celebrity setting I'm not going to do the game with because I barely even remember her name most of the time. Okay. Um, uh, Christine Taylor. Hey, neat. My okay. And I were at the same Mexican restaurant. Okay. And again, in Studio City. This is lit in, 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 now that I think about it, this is like a block from where I saw Tom Arnold. Hotspot. Celebrity hotspot. Absolutely. <laughs> Studio City. It's where I, you know, I, I worked at a blockbuster there and a lot of people came in from Forrest Whitaker to, uh, Kato Kalin. To Kato Kalin to John Noble. To, damn, what, John Noble, yes. But then what's, oh, shoot, what's the guy from Will and Grace? Uh, Eric McCormick. Eric McCormick. He came in and I uh, was able to sell him the Blockbuster Rewards program, which I have to assume is still paying off. Um, all right. <laughs> all right. Let's move on TV. to TV. I've seen four things, including, including Amazing, Amazing Race. Race. I've seen two things, including Amazing Race. So how about you do two? I'll do mine. Okay. Then we'll end with your two. We uh, might have one in common aside from, uh, from Amazing Race. Okay. Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah. That's my other one. Okay. I figured. Okay. So we did. We both watched the Silicon Valley premiere, yeah. which was called Success Failure. Indeed. Um, what did you think? I think it's 
I, I laughed at a couple of things. Uh, I laughed when Jared had to be shooed away like a puppy. Uh, I thought that was great. Um, from a story and character standpoint, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I like the idea of Dinesh being promoted because I feel like there's stuff in that character that has not been explored yet. I was talking with, with a friend of mine the other day that, um, that like certain, some of the supporting characters you feel like by their very nature, there's only so much you'll ever really be able to get out of them. But Dinesh is someone that I think could yield some good results as a, as a CEO who is going to flounder probably when you, okay. Yeah. I'm saying when you say good results, you mean good for the viewer or do you mean, do you mean it will bring out good qualities in Dinesh? Because I'm no, good for the viewer. Okay. Cause I'm yeah, no, the no. exact opposite. No, I, Dinesh is actually a character I love because he's the, because he's not in a powerful position, he seems like this sort of like shy, unassuming nerd. Yeah. But we've gotten hints in the past that when he does have some power, yeah. he can be kind of a monster. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that somebody essentially nominated him could be the absolute worst thing for him because <laughs> now someone somewhere has faith in him. Um, yeah. So I think, so I like the potential of that. Um, I like the potential of, of Richard. And I, I, I like that this is now becoming like a multi-pronged show where he's doing his thing you know, Piper Chad is doing its thing. And then, uh, I forgot. Uh, Huli? G- yeah. Gavin, Gavin Belson, Gavin Belson. Yeah. Yeah. And he's kind of doing his own thing. It was nice to see, uh, Steven, uh, yeah. as well. I hope that he's not gone. See, it certainly looks like he's been brushed away. Yeah. And that's something that uh, I, I really love Silicon Valley. Um, I think the third season was the best of the three. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping it continues in that. But one thing that does delight me about it and frustrate me about it is that it has a tendency, as we talked about last season, sometimes in one episode to set up, okay, here's what the rest of the season is. Yeah. And then immediately change. On yeah. It. So like, and that is uh, a good and bad quality. Uh, yeah. And so I felt like the end of the season of season three was like, uh, Jack, what's a uh, Tobo's name? Jack, uh, Parker. That's no. something like something that. like that. Uh, whatever Jack, um, and Gavin and like they're in, you know, evil combined force and they're yeah. going to be, you know, a formidable foe with you with their two heads joined. Yeah. And then to like immediately in a very, very funny, yeah. uh, funny way. Um, sideline Jack. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, fun to see Henry Phillips back as that creepy tech guy. Um, oh, is that his? Yeah. Okay. Comedian Henry Phillips, who I, who I, uh, saw at the UCB a couple of times. Oh, that, that creepy tech guy, not the yeah. security <laughs> Sorry, guy. I should have specified right. they're, That's they're right. all creepy tech guys. Yeah. Cause I was thinking about the creepy security guy who's like the over eager security guy who was flying to Shanghai and back oh, yeah. five times. Yeah. Uh, he's fantastic. Who's almost a bond henchman uh, in his yeah, loyalty. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, so lots of, uh, lots of great stuff. Um, uh, lots of very Silicon Valley type of funny stuff. I love the, uh, everybody waiting to confront Richard and he comes in the back door yeah. and everyone's confused. And then uh, Jared runs in mid, mid scenes like they're going to confront you. I didn't know you were going to, you know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's literally like by having him rush in later, they're literally milking the, in a good way. Like yeah. they found another way to make the same joke. Yeah. Uh, like the joke isn't over yet. Um, and then it was nice to see, uh, Russ Hanneman. Is that his name? Oh my God. He, like, uh, uh, Chris Diamantopoulos yeah. is the actor. And this, I've seen him and he's been in a lot of stuff, yeah. including 
uh, as I mentioned, I think last season, um, uh, I always want to remind people of Christine Mantopoulos climbing out of a dead horse in on Hannibal. That's right. <laughs> when yes. he's the social worker, very, very different performance. Yeah. And uh, he's, and he's in arrested development, the, the Netflix oh, one right. with the guy who keeps forgetting people's faces. Yeah, face blindness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, in, in, I think his best role is, is Russ Hanneman because it's, I guess it's, it seems like such an obvious, it's like a Dana McBride type of type of character you've seen a million times <laughs> yeah. of this just like forcefully vulgar person yeah. who has no sense of the world around him. Yeah. And yet they keep finding ways to make it funny. Much well, like Dana McBride often does. Yeah. Yeah. But well, that, that scene of him and cause a it's, he's using graphic elaborate gay sex metaphors yeah. to, to give a pep talk to Richard in front of a priest or kindergarten. Yeah. But I think the nice twist is that they're in no way homophobic. Yeah. He's actually embracing because his grandfather, my, my 80 year old grandfather came out as beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So he's just like, <laughs> but this is the way that this character knows how yeah. to embrace homosexuality is to just work incredibly yeah. vulgar descriptions and general uh, conversation. And then I don't even want to give it away for people who haven't seen it, but the button on that scene yeah. killed me. And just, and I think that the difference between his character and a Danny McBride type of character uh, is that his character is very optimistic. He's very positive. He might seem aggressive, uh-huh. but he's a very positive person. Uh, and and he, he can have a very infectious energy. But also very impulsive. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's a really, like, it's a fully developed character. Last season when he mentioned that he considered having Ehrlich and Richard killed, there's a part of me that thinks that he really did consider that for a second. Oh, absolutely. He's a very impulsive person. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a good episode. I'm... When I say cautiously optimistic, I mean mostly optimistic. Um, but I'm I'm curious to yeah. see where they go. But I'm always curious to see where they yes. go, and they very seldom disappoint me. And then the last thing I'll say is, I think uh, you know, as much as I love Ehrlich as a character, there's some Schadenfreude in seeing him get get completely just stonewalled yeah. by Bigetti's uh, uh, father. Yeah, um, uh, and yet still have the hubris to talk about uh, installing a palapa in his backyard. <laughs> <laughs> Ehrlich is a character I feel like that, that fits into what I'm talking about in that they can still milk him for laughs and he can still do, he can still be seeming seemingly incompetent and yet still good at certain things. Yeah. Uh, and but they'll have some pathos too. Yeah. But I feel like there's only so much they're going to be able to develop that character. He's, he's a, there's a lot of elements to him, but within those, there's only so many places he can go. And so the, so you can't totally elevate him. Whereas that's what I mean is like Dinesh, there's enough there and he's similar enough to Richard in certain ways that I feel like it's going to be interesting to see him emerge and find, and the writers find new places for him, his character to go. Um, I also did enjoy the, uh, the recurring visual motif of the men's room and the men's room is, is laid out in a way that most men's rooms are, are <laughs> no. not yeah. where the urinals like you can just, there's no barriers between urinals yeah, and you can no just see chamber. Yeah. Like most men's rooms. Yeah. And you can just see everything. Yeah. Which is uh, pretty funny. Okay. What's next for you? Then you've got two. Yeah. Right. That I haven't seen. So I've got survivor and David, I'll say it. You know how you were talking last week and perpetually about how Survivor brings out the worst in people? <laughs> there was a really lovely moment where there's this woman named Sari. It's her fourth time playing. 
and she's doing very well, but she's an older woman at this point. And so there's a, there's a reward challenge in which they, it's, they've made the merge, but for challenge purposes, they tend to divide them up into teams. And so she, she was, uh, the captain of her team. So she had to like pick people, but I'm sure she would have preferred to just sit out in general because she's going to be a drag on her team. It's a big swimming challenge. She's not a strong swimmer. And there comes a moment when it's very clear that like her team is going to lose. And so she's swimming and and struggling and she has to get up on a platform, but the platform is floating. So like every time she tries, it's just not going to work. Um, and even, and, and actually just as the, as the challenge is about to end, one of the people from her team jumps back into the water swims out and like helps her up even though it means that player is going to have to do her do her part again and helps her up and even though and then the challenge is over and this team has lost and but Suri like still wants to finish and so the rest of her team like jumps into the water and like they swim out to her and they help her finish and they're like they say like you'll be fine. Like we believe in you. It's going to be okay. And then people from the other team are also cheering her on. And it's, it's a really nice moment. And it's something that I find happens in all star seasons is everybody there knows how difficult it is to be there. And many of them at this point have relationships outside of the show. And while they are competing against each other, while they will absolutely stab each other in the back, there is some basic humanity that comes out every once in a while. And the fact that, yes, these people aren't sleeping, they're not eating, and they're competing against each other. But every once in a while, humanity shows up, as it did with the with Jeff Varner and Zeke, you know, in an ugly way, but still a vaguely uh, inspiring yeah. way. And, um, but a nice way in everyone other than exactly <laughs> exactly acted very nicely like this is a big this is a season that's big with people like wanting to support people when it comes to personal stuff and it was really touching and i liked it a lot and you know the rest of the of the episode unfolded in a very interesting way but that moment you don't see it very often uh and so that was a situation where survivor brought out the best in people and so i felt i should mention it um uh, so one thing i was gonna like i I follow enough because I follow Rob Sesternino and you and I follow okay. a couple of other people who tweet about Survivor um, while it's on. So I happen to pick up weird things. So what's with Michaela snacking during tribal council? Multiple people were tweeting about this. Yeah, that's uh, it seems to be like a thing that she does uh, as a way of Michaela is not the most subtle person and can often be a bit arrogant and uh, okay. annoying. She's also remarkably entertaining. Um but, uh, but yeah, like she will have like something to eat or she'll have like a, like a cup of water and it'll be like just drinking it and just sort of seem like I'm just doing my thing over here. You guys, while somebody else gets voted out and it's kind of, it's, it's a way of like exaggeratingly, exaggeratedly showing that, uh, that she's not concerned. I see. I so. see. It's kind of a mark of, of arrogance, but it's also kind of funny as well. I like it. It's like uh, on Alan McBeal when Peter McNichol's character uh, as a lawyer, when the other lawyer was talking, would loudly pour himself a glass of water. <laughs> I never saw that, but that's funny. That's very funny. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and then I also saw, um, I watched, I just finished uh, earlier today. I finished in its entirety. Uh, Five came back. The uh, Netflix oh. series about George Stevens, John Houston, William Wyler, Frank Capra, Frank Capra, and another notable one, 
John Ford, of course. Uh, and these these directors working in World War II and shooting various documentaries and that sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, hats off to Netflix for not merely having that miniseries, but also featuring those documentaries. Uh, and so what I'll say is that it's interesting, and I immediately emailed all of my students and said, hey, we're, we're getting into the 1930s and 40s in our class. You should go and watch this on Netflix. It's, in, it's very interesting, and you might find it interesting. But anyway, um, and they inter- so Meryl Streep narrates, but they interview five directors. Oh, right. Paul Greengrass, Spielberg, Coppola, Lawrence Kasdan, and Guillermo del Toro. Which is, you know, and that's very, and that's interesting and, and it cuts back and it's, it's, it's interesting. The ones like each director, they'll comment on everyone, but they kind of have their guy that they're zeroing in on. And it's not who you would immediately assume. And, uh, and what they say is interesting in the doc and, and the series itself is interesting. And it told me stuff that I didn't necessarily know. It does feel a little shallow. Not what they're saying, but it does feel like, you know, you could probably get another episode out of this. Mm-hmm. Like each one is over an hour, probably about an hour and a half. So, you know, that's a good size series, but it does feel like they could have gone a little bit deeper. And I feel like they maybe could have interviewed more people. It felt a little bit, it's like a B level paper, you know, where it's like you, <laughs> like a B level research paper. Sorry, I'm thinking in terms of that because I've got a big stack of them right here I need to read. Um, where yes, this absolutely, I'm learning stuff and you've done your work. You've done more than the minimum amount. Good for you. But you could have gone a little bit above and beyond. So that's the thing that I was thinking, but it did occur to me that maybe the documentaries themselves, though not officially part of the series, that they're the rest of the series, Mm. that you can only talk so much about what the art, what an artist is doing. And then after a while, you just need to watch the art. So that's kind of a conclusion I came to yesterday. And so like, I feel like if I watch these documentaries, which I might, I might not have time to do anytime soon, but if I watch these documentaries that will provide the, 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 that will fill in the information that I feel like the series is lacking. So I'm not sure about that, but, uh, but that's, that's the vibe I got. It's still interesting. Yeah. I want to read the book first. I've heard the book is great by Mark Harris. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I, I watched, I took a class in college in film school on war propaganda. Yeah. And so I saw some of those. Yeah. Not, you know, not nearly all of them, but some of the Frank Capra and John Houston stuff yeah. I saw. And uh, Greg Tolan has an interesting role to play in one of these where he was assigned to like make a very specific type of movie. And then he decided he was going to do a very different type of movie and wound up being super racist to the Japanese, which is fairly common. Yeah. Uh, you know, but he went so far that, that even, even in that world, they're like, okay, this is too much, Mr. Toland. And I don't think it's cause he was necessarily racist so much as he was just trying to do what people seem to think was required, uh, of these films at that time. Okay. So anyway, um, okay. Lastly, amazing race, which admittedly, I do not remember who the last people to leave were. Well, okay, well it ended with uh, you're still racing. That's why. That's it. Okay. I was struggling to remember. Because it was um, Liz and the big bearded loser that I can't stand. And it's frustrating. They were doing I, so well for a while. Yeah, but I feel like 
not to toot my own horn, but if you go back to our discussion of the first episode, yeah, I called it. Sure. I, I said this guy, because he's like a big, burly like guy. Yeah. He's like, how do you not know how to or? I'm a butcher. And yes. I said, I think I said, I think this guy is low-key a big baby. And um, yeah. uh, that turned out to be absolutely the case. And he also said... Because there was a du- there were two episodes. It was a double episode last yeah. uh, last week, which I didn't know. Um, but he he did that again, or it might have been the week before. I watched three episodes in a row because I I needed to catch up. But he did it again, where there was a challenge, and he discovered something, and he's like, I can't imagine anybody not discovering yes. that. And part of me's like, well, yeah, okay. And I'm sure there are things that other people do that you can't do. Like, it, why why say this? Like, it's yeah, just. He's- He's he's a real child. It seems like in a lot of yeah. ways, um, he really gets on my nerves. And this is the thing. So one thing I've noticed with this season, because of the weird premise of matching up strangers, yeah, it's not uncommon for there to be teams where you like one person more than the other. Absolutely, but it's happening a lot now. Yeah, um, and especially because I like Liz a lot. Mm-hmm. I forget this guy's uh, this big bearded baby's name, yeah. but I, uh, I I don't like him. Um, but then the most extreme example of that is the team who did go home at the halfway point. Uh, Sarah, who seems nice. Yeah. And Shamir, and Shamir, who is the word like good riddance, honestly. And no question like, about th- it. He's not even a like love to hate him guy. Like I was, I was just glad he's gone. He's yeah. the worst. Oh, he makes bearded guy look <laughs> yeah. like, you know, the height of stoicism. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. look, yeah, the guy, uh, Oh, this is like, the self-described alpha male. That's how he described himself in the first, in the first episode, which anytime a guy says that about himself, it's like, he's already making excuse excuses for being an asshole. It sounds like that's how it comes across to me, but then ended up being like in a macho way, a total whiny baby. Yeah. It's just like, wow. Even when you're complaining, you're still talking about your balls. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And don't we, and that, you know what, that's the thing is I can, I'm somebody who I, I have my comfort zone and it's pretty small. And, and if I go out of there, then I, I can be, uh, moody. Let's just say moody. I might not verbalize it, but people can tell I'm not in a great mood. So that's, which is one of the reasons I could never go on survivor amazing race. Uh, cause I don't think I would do very well, but you know, and so he has to rappel down, uh, a building and the straps seem a little bit too tight and they're, uh, crushing his, uh, balls and i'm not gonna say junk i refuse to say junk um you could say testicles i could say yeah like i know but, yeah yeah <laughs> his testicles yeah, yeah that's that, what they're called i know but it just seems somehow clinical i guess it, that's fine that's, uh, that's but anyway, what i prefer but like uh, I, said, I like to be a lady in the streets yeah, yeah. How about Nards? We haven't heard that since we were kids. <laughs> <laughs> like they said in the monster squad um anyway so uh and that's the thing is, yeah, that's really uncomfortable. If that's really uncomfortable and it's the kind of thing that like, well, your mind is not going to be able to focus on anything you need to do. So I can understand well, that. But here's the thing. Once the pain is over, yeah, just let it be over. Move on. Don't get mad at the fucking show. Like he was yeah. mad. He was mouthy to fill. Yeah. You don't, you don't mouth off to fill. Exactly. Um, but also like there were what, uh, 10 other guys who did yeah. that. Or maybe not, you know, because there are none of the teams say half of them. Yeah. Are, uh, I, uh, Several five other guys. or six other guys yeah. who did that and managed to not, you know, throw a little hissy yeah. fit and break a window. And even one of them said, it's like, yeah, it was awful. I didn't like it. Everything got crushed, but you just, that's the challenge and you move on, you know? Yeah, and the worst, that guy. Yeah. It's, it seems to me that 
Because they didn't even get it. it. That wasn't even when they got eliminated. No. Yeah. So like, it seems to me that, okay, I'm not in pain anymore. And we didn't get eliminated. I'm in a good mood. But no, no. he just, he was really petty and just held on to things. And no, thank you. Yeah, I feel, I mean, the, the, there's the biggest, I mean, they're gone now, but like, I don't think any two team members dislike each other as much, dislike each other as much as them. And no, it's, it's And there's some competition. There's Liz sure. and Beardo, and then there's Brooke and Scott. And Brooke is exhausting. Yeah. But and Scott's I mean, no uh, prize pig I, himself. I would but. like to, th- I don't know, I mean, it's a high pressure envir- environment. I would like to think I would deal with, um, with Brooke better than Scott does. Um, at the same time, like they're, they're both a little bit catty to each other, but I think, but her constant, like, I can't everything. Yes. Every single thing. That's true. I can't do this. I can't like, I can see running out of patience. I, I think I like to think that I would hold it together a little bit more, um, than, than, than Scott does because you see other people are willing to help her. Yeah. You know, team fun. Uh, what's her name? Becca. Yeah. Uh, was great. Yeah. Of course <laughs> um, she was. Yeah. Although we have to go back to like, the, because we didn't talk about it, uh, the, the show last, mm-hmm. last week. Cause you hadn't watched it yet. Right. But when Floyd forgot their passports <laughs> yeah. and team fun, suddenly became team not fun. Yeah. And Becca called him a fucking idiot. Yeah. Which is hilarious to me. And you know, and when <laughs> I heard, hasn't stopped smiling uh, yeah. and patting him on the back and she's like, you fucking idiot. But you know what? <laughs> I'm so willing to give her the benefit of the doubt that I could see that being high, like that level of energy uh-huh. behind you fucking idiot wasn't a hundred percent negative. Like I could see it also being just like, ex- like a certain type of exasperated, like, uh-huh. a, like when you're exasperated with something you love and care about sure, and they've yeah. done something that has really screwed you over. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, the thing that gets me is that Brooke, like she fell and hurt her wrist. Yeah. And in that moment, yeah. Cause I think she was bleeding. Right. And in that moment, Scott's like, are you okay? And she goes, it's fine. Let's just keep going. So like in that moment, she's yeah. able to power through as much as she can. But like when she has to eat some, <laughs> some like, cod yeah. or whatever, it wasn't even like, I, there are definitely grosser challenges. Yes, like there this, are. That was just like, I feel like I could have choked that down. What does that tell you? Uh, yeah. It may be tough. Cause the one, um, Someone said it tasted like lox, which is a taste that I don't like. I'm not a picky eater, but I don't like smoked Isn't, salmon. Oh, okay. Um, hmm. uh, it's it's just too much. It's too pungent for me. I, I, hmm. I don't like it. So I feel like I would have had trouble, but I wouldn't have been like, I can't. Yeah. And the thing is, she says she can't, and then she always does. So I feel like that's what Scott should say is like, you keep saying that, and yeah. yet you keep. That said, uh, I, so I'm not a huge fan of Brooke. She did have the the biggest laugh line for me in these two episodes okay. when everyone's going through all those drawers and another team shows up and she goes, hi, welcome to hell. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. If the drawer thing is hell, she's got a long race ahead of her yeah. or not. But um, I do get the impression it was very hot in there and probably getting hotter than yes, more teams sure, showed up. Sure. Um, but yeah, that, that was a very funny, I guess, well, we, I guess I don't want to say line reading, but that's what it's, it's a yeah. funny line. Reading. Uh, funny delivery, I guess. Um, yeah, and it's uh, team fun continues to be fun, you know. Yeah, how like it almost feels like it shouldn't be possible for a team to do the fast forward completely right and not get first place. It does feel like the fast forward just that it's just slow. 
that and because if other people the other teams it's not like they're just these dynamos that did amazing work or anything yeah, like yeah, that yeah. uh yeah it feels like that feels like poor planning on the show's part yeah there should be a thing like if a team shows up before the fast forward team gets there and the fast forward team has done everything right then it should be like sorry you have to wait right Do you know what i'm saying yeah absolutely like i mean there was one fast forward a few seasons ago where there was in the warning in like in the fast forward thing it was like if the wind's too bad Wind, you're not yes. gonna be able to go like that i understand because they're yes. saying it right from the beginning but everything went perfectly for becca and floyd and i feel like i feel like the show the producers like uh outsmarted themselves here because yeah. i think what they wanted is for a team to go to find out they had to skydive and be like, and then it suddenly that be a sort of sense of drama, like yeah. be Brooke and Scott or someone sure. who like, like and, that, and Scott wanted to go for the fa- fast forward. He would have yeah. had a, a tough, tough time jumping out of the helicopter. Like I feel like the producers wanted that kind of drama. And instead they got like, before the guy even got the words like skydive out of his mouth, yeah. Becca and Floyd were like jumping for joy yeah. and it ended up being delightful TV in a completely different way. And, and yeah, it really is like the point of the fast forward is if you do this, you win. Essentially. I mean, I guess that's not ever actually spoken, but that has been the case with essentially, aside from those like asterisk, uh, fast forwards. Um, it feels like that's the unspoken thing. And like, if I'm Becca and Floyd on one, on one hand, it's like, well, we still got to do this amazing thing, but at the same time, come on guys. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But I guess that is a good way to look at it is they didn't have to like go through hell. Exactly. (laughs) Um, or wait, they did do that, didn't they? Because that was in the first half. Um, yeah, they did I, lose, the I lose track when it's when I'm watching several in a row. Um, yeah, um, but they they didn't have to expend any energy, really. They just sat in the helicopter, and then yeah. they didn't even really have to jump out of the helicopter. They just got strapped to somebody who jumped out of a helicopter. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they, it was pretty. It was pretty passive. It seems weird to me to jump out of a helicopter. I recognize you're not literally jumping. But it just seems yeah yeah I guess you just tumble out yeah. yeah that is weird now that you mention it um, um and that's yeah I would you skydive instinctively I'd say no but at the same uh, I think I could yes I don't I, it's not at the top of my list but I could my my gut reaction is yeah that sounds fun I'd try it but then this had the like Becca POV camera of just someone like, yeah. just leaning over the edge of a helicopter into the open space. Oh. And in that moment I was like, I don't know if I could make myself get out of that helicopter. It would help yeah. that I was in this case, she's strapped to somebody who's going no matter what. Right. right. Um, it takes the, takes the choice away. So I would have done it in that case, I guess. But if it were completely up to me, I'm not sure that I would have what it took to make yeah. that just, just that last lean forward. Is, There's, Pretty There's a, uh, a scene in uh, Congo where you are the endangered species, which is uh, not a movie that is amazing. But I do like this moment where there comes a moment where they all have to jump out of a plane and they all have parachutes. And Tim, Car- Tim Curry says, like, you know, in that w- over-exaggerated Romanian accent, he's like, he says, like, uh, can you push me, please? <laughs> and so they start pushing and goes, harder, please. Because <laughs> he is, like, resisting. And then finally they get him, they push him out. But, That's uh, funny. But, yeah, so it's uh, now... Does that movie end in a balloon? It does. Which Not should a tell, lot of movies end in a balloon. Which should tell you the type of movie it is. It was, it was pitched as from the writer of Jurassic Park, uh-huh. so people thought it was going to be Jurassic Park. It is, in fact, like... 
King Solomon's mines. You know, we've got hippo attack. We've got volcano erupting. We've got killer gorillas. We've got ancient ruins and, and these, uh, uh, not native American, but like these, you know, whatever you call them. Um, Uh, indigenous indigenous. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my guess. Uh, yeah. And I'm not as big a fan of Congo as you are, but, uh, you mentioned the hippo, hippo attack definitely outdid last year's legend of Tarzan. Sure. Which was a a real tease. Yeah. In that it like, like second scene into the movie, you've got Margot Robbie talking about how dangerous hippos are. Here we go. Salivating for a hippo (laughs) attack the whole time. When the hippo shows up, it's over in like five seconds. Yeah. That was a real, a real letdown of a hippo attack. The hippo attack on the, uh, on the jungle cruise at Disneyland is a bigger deal than in that movie. 